Take a network break. The Virtual Donut Factory is back to full capacity, so help yourself to a sugary confection as we sift and sort through today's IT news. we got stories on IT fraudsters, new products from Juniper, HPE, and VMware, and a bit of space networking. We're sponsored in part by Nokia. Did you know that Nokia's SR Linux network operating system supports streaming telemetry, so you can get a more accurate, granular view of critical device data? Find out more at nokia.ly slash fabric dash services dash system. And you can hear all about it on the Tech Bytes podcast on the Packet Pushers from June 27th. Uh, Greg, welcome back. Before we get started, we had an FU from a listener, Nick, uh, Nick Looper. We were talking on a recent network break about using 5G uh, as a wireless system for uh, particularly manufacturing use case. He says, hey, don't forget about other narrowband protocols. Uh, yeah, so that's a very good point. Uh, although I was actually might have been thinking one thing, I think I said another, which happens very often. I'm not perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, you probably wouldn't connect all of your devices to a 5G system using 5G. So that is, you know, with a SIM card of some sort that's linked to your private FG 5G base station. You'd be thinking about a lot of IoT and sensors are using a range of protocols. So it could be Bluetooth, could be Wi-Fi. There's um, various standards around here like LTE, NB-IoT, uh, LoRa, Sigfox has kind of <laughs> kind of died, um, and they are. There's a whole bunch of them around this sort of space, which are licensed and unlicensed spaces, as well as the cellular 3G, 4G, 5G. And the reason that I didn't particularly call them out is because m many 5G products support those as well. That is, they have the ability to transmit and to manage NB-IoT and LoRa. It may be that you might want to buy just technology that does, you know, NBIoT or LoRa. LoRa, NBIoT are both the sort of things where you can actually power something for 10 years on a button battery. Uh -huh. And they've designed for very, very low power, but also um, so that they don't need a lot of pa battery power and so forth. But they're very low bandwidth. So if you just need to pull something on a once an hour or a once a day basis, you know, or something's triggered and sends a message to say I'm triggered and there are sensors in that sort of space to do that. And of course, you've got BLE, Bluetooth Line Energy, Zigbee, uh, and a range of others as well if you want something that it uses more power. But um, so the chances are that if you get a 5G solution, you want to be able to have all of these in a single package. That is Wi-Fi, 3G, 4G, 5G, but you also will get these other low-powered WAN standards as well. So it's not an exclusive thing, but yeah, I should have maybe called it out. So yeah, Nick is right in that sense. Yeah, and of course, it's about wanting to account for a variety of use, a variety of requirements: data rate, power mm. consumption, range, how long the battery is going to last, how often you need to send somebody out to change it, that kind of thing. And so, you do have a variety of options. And yeah, so thanks, mm -hmm. Nick, for uh, letting us know and uh, keeping us honest. And if you yeah, have the main point there was that I thought five G's entry to the market as a private product. You know, obviously, five G for telcos is a thing. But if we're going to see private 5G, I think it's mostly going to happen in niche markets and then spread uh, into adjacent markets from there. So mining, manufacturing, industrial applications, shipboard applications, and so forth, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, but mm -hmm. just uh, it is a reminder that 5G is not the only option if you're looking for uh, connectivity, particularly in a manufacturing mm -hmm. environment. For sure, yeah. Uh, and as always, if you have questions, comments, corrections, whatever, hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. The FU stands for follow-up. All right, let's dive into the news. A person has been indicted by a U.S. grand jury for allegedly importing $1 billion worth of counterfeit Cisco equipment and selling it through dozens of companies. The indictment alleges that Onar Aksoy imported counterfeit gear from China and Hong Kong, then resold it through 19 companies in Florida and New Jersey, as well as on Amazon and eBay. The biz these businesses netted approximately $100 million in profits. 
Yeah, there's lots to unpack in this, surprisingly, because when you go and read the um, court submission, it's actually really interesting that this seems to have happened from 2013 all the way up till 2022. And certainly from 2013 to 2016, this person has been buying uh, counterfeit equipment or as asserted in the document. And that doesn't necessarily mean uh, it was fully fake. It might have actually been recycled equipment, which mm-hmm. could also be classed as counterfeit because it doesn't come through the general. So it could be grey marketed equipment. Right. Um, but the suggestion is here is this person um, paid $55 million to suppliers in Hong Kong and China, shipped them to the United States, even uh, packaged it in Cisco labels, stickers, boxes, and documentation. Right. And made to appear like new and genuine equipment, manufactured and authorized by Cisco, even though they weren't and then proceeded to ship them out into the market for, and the, the complaint alleges that he made about $100 million out of it. So not a, not, a, not a backdoor operation. It was a mainstream substantial operation. It's $55 million worth of kit at 95 to 98% off uh, Cisco's RRP. Is a several warehouses full of gear, right? Yeah, it was an extensive operation. Uh, according to the indictment, the equipment was, quote, typically older, lower model products, some of which had been sold or discarded, which Chinese counterfeiters then modified to appear to be genuine versions of new, enhanced, and more expensive Cisco devices. So they were trying to defraud customers with that. The counterfeiters also added components to circumvent uh, Cisco's own license checks uh, for hardware and uh, software license uh, compliance authorization. Yeah, so there's... Several things here um, about that. Obviously, it's been going on for over a decade. Why hasn't Cisco done something earlier? Is there something now that may be that the legal system made it very difficult? Maybe this person was very clever at you know moving around through companies and using shell companies to do the deals right. while maintaining customer relationships. That would be a very tricky thing to do. But you know, $100 million on $55 million worth of product, that's $45 million gross. There's sufficient motivation, perhaps. Yes. So I wonder how much this sort of stuff, and if this is just one, if there's not more, does that make sense? Well, it does. I mean, because as you mentioned, this has been going on since 2013, and Cisco knew about it. According to the indictment, Cisco sent seven letters uh, of cease and desist uh, to this person, allegedly. And um, the customer, this person who was also selling gear on Amazon and eBay got so many customer complaints that Amazon and eBay basically kicked him off, but he just went back and, and signed up again with you know, new aliases. So it has been going on. There were red flags, but he was able to get away with it for years and years and years. Which is fascinating. So I, I wonder how much Cisco's licensing program, and which I speculated on at the time, the idea about the licensing and the ability to report your licenses back to Cisco, not only gave them valuable business intelligence about what their customers were buying mm-hmm. and using, but it also was a way to track the gray market. So if your license was in, you know, you'd attach software to it and then you'd report it to Cisco. Cisco would say, hang on, I'm starting to see how much grey market equipment is out there as customers move to it. So I, I imagine that, you know, it's never one thing is one of my mottos in, in these right. companies. And I think Cisco's licensing led to this centralised reporting, which gave Cisco more evidence and more capability to target where this was coming from, you know, to find the customers and to get in contact with them and gather the necessary evidence. And keep in mind that, you know, this person is shifting, what, a billion dollars worth of kit at list price, that's a lot of gear, and that has impacts to spares and stocking. If you're a company like Cisco, you decide how many spares to hold according to how much spare equipment you've sold in that region because you know approximately what the failure rate is. So if you know that this particular switch type of switch fails at a 1.5% rate over a period of time, you know how many spares to hold, right. and you know where they have to be held, more or less, because you know where it was sold. And so there is an impact there to a customer's experience in that sense. 
There's also a risk to customers if malware was installed. In theory, at least, vendors control their supply chain for security, for product integrity, to make sure that you get a product which has not been uh, intercepted in transit and you know something happened. It's just a shame, really, that Cisco's licensing had such a poor reputation because uh, they implemented it. In you know, we've talked about it plenty of times. Is that customers are certainly very unhappy about it. But on the other hand, it's typical for Cisco to implement new features badly, ship them too early when they're not ready for customer use, and take a few years to get them right. And then you know, call it based on customer feedback. We're selecting the features that customers want instead of, you know, in my opinion, doing it right the first time. And so I think there's so much room for Cisco to improve here. However, that's it. At Cisco Live, we did see several executives get up on stage and say, we've heard our customers. Our goal is to make products simpler. And I think largely that's a sign that Cisco's licensing is just, you know, and its product strategy is too diverse, too complex, and they need to solve it. But I also agree that Cisco licensing has solved this problem, customers getting faulty or poor quality equipment that would be causing them problems. Yeah, you know, so we should note that, um, you know, buying used or refurbished equipment isn't technically illegal. There are legitimate companies that that do this business and folks can go out and for whatever reason, you know, they need something uh, over the short term or they, you know, have cost constraints or whatever, you can get it. But this person was clearly engaging in fraudulent behavior by passing off old yeah. gear as new mm. and using counterfeit, which is is illegal, counterfeit uh, equipment. So yeah, that's, that's a different. Um, I think, you know, customers who may be financially constrained or don't want to go through Cisco or whatever, if you're thinking about buying off a third party site and you're seeing a discount <laughs> that may be too good to be true, you should it, definitely stop and think about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be environmentally friendly to see a lot of these assets reused. Sure, And absolutely. in an era of, you know, where supply chain is broken, Cisco should be taking steps to allow people to reuse this product. Yep. But what we've seen over the last decade is Cisco has firmly refused to let people recycle and reuse right. its hardware. They have. And deliberately get in the way and say, make the licensing for refurbished equipment prohibitively expensive and difficult. You know, and and there are companies out there who are doing it legitimately and running modest businesses. They're not very successful because Cisco makes sure they don't make enough money to survive. And that's so, you know, Cisco wants to stand up and say how environmentally sound they are. This is one area where I feel they haven't done everything that they could. Absolutely. They could do, I think, probably a decent business in secondhand and refurbished equipment if they wanted to, or even wanted to outsource it to other folks to do it with, you know, all the Cisco controls in place. They certainly could. And that would be great for their environmental footprint. Yeah. Uh, with I think this licensing, they could. They could. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Because you could yep. say, is this, you know, they have a set of trusted secondhand refurbished companies. They register, send up the details of the device. It gets registered in the central database. And when it goes back out, for a not for a reasonable fee, not the current unreasonable pricing right. around refurbished kit. Right, you know you could reuse that, and I I do feel there's something there. Yeah, uh, and just before we wrap this up, uh, if you are thinking about going gray market or secondhand, there's also a lot of other smaller vendors you might want to try uh, if you're looking if you need to fill a hole with equipment quickly. Uh, I'm thinking like Ubiquity, Microtech, and others that you mm. know, could provide similar benefits uh, if you are in need of something. We're seeing a lot of people move to white box as well. Yep. So, you know, you don't have to have, and then say that at some point in the future, when the product becomes freely available, we'll upgrade from the white box or transition from the white box to something else. But they're finding ways to set up their configs and their SDN to do both at the same time. Yeah. All right, moving on, but sticking with schemes, three men in the U.S. have been accused of wire fraud and money laundering by pirating and reselling up to $88 million worth of Avaya software license keys. An Avaya employee allegedly used his sysadmin credentials to generate license keys, which he then sold to a third party who then sold those on to resellers. The license keys were for Avaya's IP office software. 
So the difference here is that although it's fraud, it's actually an internal person inside of Avea was generating the software license keys yes. and then selling them to make money. So this was a, a different uh, threat vector. And that's a lot of money. He's made a, sold a lot of licenses <laughs> off to make $88 million. Yes. <laughs> Now, again, retail prices and street prices are a different thing. You know, we talked about before of a billion dollars worth of Cisco. Well, that's unreasonable because Cisco typically sells at 50% off its list pricing. So it's really $500 million. But this is just, again, this scheme ran for years and years and years and amounts to a very large amount of money. Like, what are these companies doing? Right. And apparently he was able not only to use his credentials to generate these license keys, but also to hide the fact that he was doing it from, I guess, other controls within the organization. So <laughs> Vi has mm. got some internal work to do to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Yeah, it is. It's very challenging to solve those sorts of problems because at some stage, um, and this was also for the voiceover IP stuff. So this is the small, the IP telephony gear that Avaya was selling, which was pretty specific, pretty niche sort of a market. But it's also probably reasonable to assume that the internal con checks and controls on this was not up to scratch. Yeah, um, these uh, folks were doing it so long and making so much money that one of the fraudsters, I think the one who worked for Avaya, this is according to the U.S. Uh, Justice Department indictment, this person's wife was actually sort of managing that fraud business at home, <laughs> tracking all of the money coming in and who they were sending the licenses out to. It's kind of like turned into a home business. I think the lesson from both of these stories is that uh, vendors are not um, invulnerable or not massively competent at everything that they do. And even though, you know, if you have an image of these vendors as, you know, totally in control of their businesses and capable of everything, that would not be true. They are often exploited. And it's actually quite rare that we actually see these things break out into the open. So it's just an example of, you know, they're companies and they're full of people and people are not perfect. That's right. All right. Links in the show notes if you want to read up. And I, I do recommend reading the indictments from the Justice Department. In both cases, they are fascinating, but we'll move on. Uh, VMware has announced uh, vSphere Plus and vSAN Plus. These provide cloud-based management of virtualized compute and storage for workloads that are on-prem or in private or public clouds. vSphere Plus and vSAN Plus, they're both part of VMware's Project Arctic which the company announced last year. And the goal is to simplify management and ops by giving you a single cloud-based management option that stretches across on-prem and cloud environments. Yeah, so this, the key here is a cloud console. So if you're running VMware's vSphere and vSAN on-prem, notably no NSX, Drew. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's coming, I'm sure it's coming. Uh, what they're doing is giving you a cloud-managed console to run those, uh, those tools that you're using, those infrastructure pieces, and on your on-premise deployments. And obviously the point here is that once you're running the cloud console in the cloud, you've got a strategy then to move those things into the public cloud. Whereas today, if you're using VMware on AWS or Azure or Google or, or you know whatever, um, you actually have to transition your VMs from one management console to another. Mm -hmm. This gives you a way to start bringing this together into a unified whole. Um, I imagine that Project Arctic is a long-term thing. I think VMware has largely given up on its cloud, you know, private cloud as an idea, and it's sort of starting from the ground up again, does it? And going back to where we were about 10 years ago and saying, we need to rebuild this in a different way. And this is going to be interesting to see how many people who are just running vSphere and vSAN as separate entities, because that's all that this embraces at this time. You upgrade your vSphere to vSphere Plus, and basically you move from on-prem management to off-prem management, but everything else remains the same. 
Um, be interesting to see how many people pick this up and say this is a strategy for us so we can move away from cell-owned data centers to cloud-owned infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, we've seen traditional enterprise IT vendors embrace cloud-based management. Um, in June of this year, when we were talking about Cisco Live, a lot of the major announcements coming out of Cisco were about moving to that cloud-based management model for traditionally on-prem managed equipment. Mm -hmm. So I think VMware is just sort of following the crowd here. Yeah, but see, VMware has a lot of assets in this space, you know, around the cloud management tooling. This feels like it's either been thrown out or redeveloped for operation in the cloud, you know, operation operating from an off-premise institution. So, and rather than try and take their existing cloud management, they develop something entirely new. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I mean, I, I I wonder if customers were asking about this because we've often heard from other vendors that customers are asking, I want to just manage it all in the cloud. It's easier because you can do things like manage all your configs and policies in one place, you get more automated updates, and you can also move to that subscription model, which some customers seem to like for licensing. Yeah. And it's very confusing because we'll talk about HP's GreenLake in a minute. And that is much as this is that. So this approach from VMware is kind of catching up to where HP is already. In some ways, yeah, we'll have to talk about that mm. in a minute, but we've got other mm. VMware news. The company's announcing it's killing its uh, the native NSXT load balancing capability. Customers will be forced to migrate to the Avi load balancer. VMware acquired Avi Networks in 2019. Avi makes uh, application delivery controller software, including load balancers, web app firewalls, and a Kubernetes ingress controller. Yeah, so remember, this is different from the NSXT load balancing. So there's certain load balancing functions that are built into NSXT around L3, L4 load balancing capabilities. This is much more of a traditional load balancer, an appliance idea, and that it would then be able to do much more like application and rules and manipulation and so forth. So now there are multiple products in the space. Load balancing can be done many ways. And uh, this extends them into that space, that application space. I think it's really important for VMware to move away from VMs and containers and start getting into applications. And that's where they're lacking at this point in time. Yeah, well, the the, the uh, rationale for acquiring Avi was that they are entirely software based, which means you can have uh, you know individualized mm -hmm. instances of a load balancer that you can customize to each particular workload, as opposed to having one you know giant hardware appliance that you're trying to make do a variety of different mm -hmm. things for a variety of yep. different workloads. And if it's integrated with the tools, then there's a lot of benefits, synergy yep. benefits. It's just easier to use, easier to operate, and so forth. So yeah. Yep. So uh, to wrap this up, uh, VMware did not provide a date in the blog announcing the migration, um, but it does say there is a free tool available to help. So presumably the clock is ticking. Yeah. And that was announced during the VMware conference two weeks ago. Uh, and of course we had a break last week. So yes, we're um, just catching up. <laughs> we're just catching up, but it's interesting to think that VMware is announcing future products uh, and they're not here. And I think they're literally trying to say, we're catching up, we're catching, we're going somewhere because a lot of the competitive space here is, is VMware has put things in the market and they haven't been winners. They've been okay and customers are using them, don't get me wrong, but they're not dominating the market. And why do we know that? And we know that because AWS and Azure are growing substantially while VMware is only growing modestly. Right, VMware is still essentially relying on vSphere and vSAN as its primary businesses when it's hoping to move into more cloud native, but mm -hmm. uh, that's a conversation. And also the move to subscription licensing, which yes. is, you know, apparently everybody wants it. And I think where everybody means shareholders, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> 
And we will get into that uh, coming up. But first, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia. Uh, traditional network management protocols such as SNMP are still around and still have a use. But if you need detailed, granular, and near real-time data about your network devices, streaming telemetry is the modern management options. Nokia's SR Linux Network OS was designed from the beginning to enable streaming telemetry, including data on the RIB, the FIB, port, operational status, device state, and more. With streaming telemetry, you get an accurate picture of device state and health to help you monitor performance, identify issues, and more quickly analyze and troubleshoot problems. And what's more, Nokia uses widely adopted protocols such as GNMI to export telemetry so it can be collected and analyzed by third-party tools, as well as by Nokia's Fabric Services System. And in fact, Fabric Services System has been designed to provide scalable ingestion of streaming telemetry, which then supports other Nokia software capabilities like Digital Twin. To find out more about Nokia's SR Linux and streaming telemetry, go to nokia.ly slash fabric services system. That's nokia.ly slash fabric-services-system. You can also listen to the Tech Bytes episode of Nokia, which we published on June 27th, where we dive into streaming telemetry. So check out that episode as well. All right, back to the news. Uh, Juniper Networks is announcing a new energy-efficient equipment and automation for service providers as part of a cloud metro strategy. The announcement includes the ACX 7000 router product line. It offers modular designs and up to 54 ports of 400 gig and 21.6 terabits of throughput. Juniper Networks is continuing to actually produce new hardware. Uh, we know they've talked a lot about Mist and cloud and cloud software, but this is actually part of their Metro product range, and they're now calling uh, existing Metro Networks Retro Metro, which I quite liked. That uh, tickled my <laughs> tickled my humor button quite a bit, um, which is not too disparaging, but. I think they're trying to make their point. And that's, you know, a lot of Metro networks are basically DWDM these days, and we need this crank up of bandwidth. But DWDM to IP is a little bit complicated. And over the last five years, we've seen Juniper increasingly include the optical part inside of their edge boxes. So particularly inside of their routers. But this is a step in the next direction, which is a whole new hardware platform called the ACX7000. Now, the ACX7000 is a, is a bit of a beast. They're talking scaling up to 330, 345 terabits per second with a slot capacity up to 21.6 terabits per second, which is basically lots of 800 gig and 1.6 terabit Ethernet. And you can have very high 400 gig, de 400 gig e density, so 54 mm -hmm. ports per slot sort of thing. So high, high performance. This is really high density. You've got, and you've got the usual small, medium, and very large chassis type yes. sort of thing. <laughs> They're talking a lot about lower power consumption. One of the things they're driving for here is they're saying that this particular family has modern silicon and less components, and so it burns less power. And the claim in the presentation was 60 to 70% lower power consumption and more space efficient. And this is one of the interesting things about telcos is they have become very conscious of power. And if you can cut the power bill in half or a box and then put more in the box, your actual power consumption drops even further. Right. So instead of having four boxes, you can compress it to one, and that box is 60% more efficient. You actually get quite a substantial saving in power. So that's part of the system. Uh, and although there's one part which I was a bit confused, they're saying four to seven years system life. I'm like, I don't know. I think somehow I feel like telcos would regard four to seven years as a bit minimum. Right. Maybe I was surprised by them putting a number on it like that. I was like, yeah, uh, maybe I'm feeling a little, that's, that's just me being yeah, a little. Don't they sweat this equipment pretty long? But maybe that's, well, I don't know. Maybe it's changing. I mean, the point here is that Metro is where the bandwidth has to be these days. We have uh -huh. all of these content delivery networks with caching at the edge of the network, you know, the cloud players and the, the Netflixes, they all have their content nodes at the edge of the network. And 
as consumers pull more and more data, but more and more of it comes from a cache somewhere in the network. So it's the metro that needs to be overhauled and upgraded, not so much the backgrounds. So, you know, when we talk to companies like Aurelian and we talk about their ability to upgrade their backbones, that's important, but it's also important that the metro changes. And this product is certainly aimed at that. And so it has a whole bunch of DWDM or optical type capabilities built in. Keep in mind that Juniper acquired a number of optical companies over. They bought BTI Systems six years ago in 2016. They also bought a company called Arian. They also bought a silicon photonics company. And not too, and about three months ago, they announced a partnership with Synopsys for silicon photonics. So that's where they actually, Synopsys will help them design and build silicon photonics components in partnership with Juniper. So I think what we're seeing is Juniper sort of embracing the optical part blending it in with some AI, you know, the, the inevitable missed AI. Stuff. The inevitable, yeah. Yeah, inevitable. Everything we do with Juniper has got some missed AI, but credibi- credibly so, because they've shown that they're able to take the missed AI that was applied to wireless and apply it to other parts of their portfolio and, and people sort of report to us that it is actually working for them. So it is interesting that you're going to see the end of the DWDM edge, that is the IP to IP wavelength type thing to IP routing is becoming very blurred and it's just becoming like IP goes onto optical and then the optical comes out the other side. So this is a viable market. It should be very exciting for Juniper. If you're into Metro, you should be aware of this. Uh, one last thing, the routers are also using Juniper's Paragon automation services. Uh, this was a suite of services that are both partly developed and also come through acquisitions. Um, one of the things they include are automated onboarding and built-in active assurance software test agents. Juniper says the agents turn the router, quote, into a distributed sensor for assuring user experience, and it also eliminates the need for additional probe hardware. Uh, in terms of availability, several of the models of the router are available now. Others are going to become orderable between the second half of this year, 2022, and the first half of 2023, and links are in the show notes. All right, uh, we teased this uh, conversation about HPE. They've announced a new private cloud offering based on its GreenLake consumption model. The new offering is HPE GreenLake for private cloud enterprise. <laughs> More bloviation. So this is, <laughs> we talked about HP GreenLake. It, uh, I'm not sure how much, it's a little unclear just how different this is from previously what they were doing. I think previously they were supplying GreenLake as a, uh, you know, if you want a database, you buy it and here it is. And it gets, or you get the hardware and the software and the VMs and the monitoring power. And I think what they're now saying is we've actually got to the point where we're ready to say, we can give you VMs and containers just as bare VMs and containers. And we've got the billing sorted out. We've got the managed services tools for that, including installation, provisioning, firmware updates, maintenance, operations, hardware, growth planning, and support. Drew. It's all there. It's all there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is a private cloud offering. Customers are supposed to be able to not just run VMs, but also uh, bare metal or containers. And of course, because it's GreenLake, HPE monitors your consumption of infrastructure and bills you accordingly. Uh, they say it integrates with Terraform, Ansible, Puppet, and Chef. And as you mentioned, there is a managed services component to handle all of the full life cycle, including installing the hardware, provisioning it, updating it, giving you support. I couldn't find the details on the actual hardware that comes with this. I assume it's got to be substantial, mm. uh, so I'm sure there's more to come here. I think it varies. Uh, we know from previous briefings around HP GreenLake is that they have specific hardware that they're using, and you can choose any type of hardware you want, but you have to take what HP gives you, as long as it's that hardware. Right. Um, they decide, they give it to you, they make the promises to run these VMs at this service guarantee as part of their GreenLake commitment. Um, so it's been three years now. Um, there was a, a nice quote, you know, saying that, you know, back in 2019, uh, Antonio, Antonio Neri committed to delivering this at HP Discover. And 
three years later, we've actually seen them continue to commit to this very specific strategy. And I think it's unique and differentiated. Like Dell, Cisco, IBM, you know, all the others are not at all following this path and moving to cloud-enabled products and providing a turnkey hardware solution. They Some of them do, but it's not as, as complete or comprehensive. GreenLake is saying, not only will we give you hardware and software and a, and, a, and a solution just to do VMs and containers and bare metal and whatever you like and manage it for you. They're saying, we'll just do it all as a subscription, as a service. We'll take care of all the rest of it. Whereas Cisco, for example, still wants to ship you the hardware, but they'll give you a management tool. Then you're sort of still stitching it together yourself. And I think that's the differentiator here. What do you think? Absolutely. That is HP's differentiation, that that consumption model, that GreenLake model in that, you know, we'll send you a whole bunch of hardware and maybe you haven't turned it all on yet, but when you need to, we'll, we'll be there to do it for you and we'll bill you accordingly. You know, if you're using, you know, half of the number of CPUs we sent you, we only charge you for half of that CPU usage. Yes. So it's mm -hmm. that, it's that sort of public cloud pricing and consumption model, but on-prem, I think it mm -hmm. is a, just, uh, it does help distinguish HPE from its competitors like Dell, Cisco, et cetera. Uh, uh, the thing is, I'm this offering in particular. I I feel like we haven't heard much about private cloud. Like it was sort of the big thing a while, maybe mm. five six years ago, and then it kind of died down and sort of taken on new life as converged infrastructure, hyperconverged, and so on. But for HPE to really pin it down as this is private cloud, I'm I'm curious how many customers are actually looking for that now. I think significantly, but it's not everybody like it was. So. Mm -hmm. You know, 10 years ago, before public cloud, off-prem cloud became a thing, everybody ran on-prem. And so we always heard about it. Increasingly, I think on-prem is just understood and known. And the new stuff gets all the discussion and the hype and is what you hear about. I, I think people are still moving strong. You know, that's that's where the future is. I, I think the challenge is for HPE to actually mimic the public cloud experience on-prem. So that means ease of consumption, internal multi-tenancy, scaling simplicity, it all has to be there for people to actually be interested in. Yeah, you know, I kind of do want this model internally if you can actually make it work. Because there, it is a, a significant challenge to actually make a private cloud. It's not yeah. just having a bunch of VMs. But it's also a hybrid cloud. So you can run this on the public cloud as well as on the private cloud. So this, the angle here is up until now, HP has been pushing some of this into off-prem clouds. Right and putting a platform over the top. But now that they're doing more for the private cloud stuff or the on-prem and giving you the bare metal that you need, you know, the bare metal, the VMs and so forth, they're rounding that out. And so it's a hybrid thing, but it's also layered over the top, but it's not just infrastructure, it's also software. So they, you can go and buy an analytics platform and they'll deliver it on this solution. You can yep. go and buy database as a service. You can buy, right. you know, webs as a service, APIs as a service, all that sort of stuff. And they'll deliver it on this infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's the strategy, but again I have mm. questions like, you know, is there a service catalog for internal use? What about chargeback? What mm. about networking and security? How are they integrated? So I'd like to hear more from HP on how they would actually make this private cloud work. Mm. That would be interesting to know or interesting to understand for sure. Yeah. All right, two more stories before we wrap. First, FedEx says it's going to close all remaining data centers and migrate away from mainframes by 2024. This is according to a story in Data Center Dynamics. Yeah, the background here is that FedEx is under financial stress. That is, uh, as a business, it's technologically far behind DHL and obviously Amazon and so forth. In fact, so far behind that Amazon found it more efficient to do it itself than to rely on <laughs> FedEx and DHL. But FedEx in particular, Amazon was scathing of FedEx a couple of years ago and blamed them specifically for why they actually started to build their own freight business. And it's becoming clear that FedEx is falling well behind its competitors globally and it definitely needs to meet new performance and, and the scale to be able to be a modern freight company. Um, it's taken about 10 years for the, for the board and the executives to realize 
you can't just keep patching it and some sort of radical overhaul is needed. Mm-hmm. So, but I got to say the idea of retiring a large fleet of applications from a mainframe by migrating them to a tightly new platform, ground up, you know, like whatever they're going to do in two years, got to say a little bit dubious, Drew. It's, it's a tough goal. It sounds like they've been working on it, according to the story mm. that this has been an ongoing process. They're not just starting now and going to do it in two years. I think their end goal is two years and it's been an ongoing process. But still, yes, we <laughs> know that migrating away from mainframes in particular is a very tricky business. So good luck. To yeah, you well, that won't stop them from trying. I'm sure they're going to be announcing in a year or two that it's running behind schedule. And we need to allocate more money to very highly paid consulting firms to help us resolve why things are falling behind. But you can't, you know, you just got to, is this really just well thought out, well planned, well executed from a company that's starting to go under? And this is like a bit of a, you know, last dish effort, or is this, you know, just following the crowd? Yeah, the other thing you know, is the, the, the CEO is claiming that this move is going to save the company $400 million annually. And I am also very suspect of that number as well. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds very, very wrong. But it anyway, uh, yeah, link in the unless their existing data centers up, are really, really bad. <laughs> that could be. That could be. <laughs> That's entirely possible. We don't know what it looks like. They've got like gold-plated right door locks or something. You know? <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap up with a space networking update. Starlink has announced a new maritime service that provides internet service for merchant vessels, oil rigs, and, quote, premium yachts. I'm not sure what a non-premium yacht is, but there you go. Uh, I noticed this and I just wanted to mention it because there are people out there who actually have use cases for doing things on oceans Mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't see this widely announced in the general community, although I think it's been widely picked up by the maritime community. So if you follow any sort of boat stuff, they're sort of all getting very excited. Um, It's not global. So that is the Starlink uh, uh, satellites that are up in the world don't actually cover the entire globe as yet. They cover specific areas. So Check out the link and look for the coverage map and you can see where it is. By and large, you'll be able to get coverage where you want it to be, I think, excepting significant parts. So you'll still want to have other forms of um, access that use geostationary satellites, not just LEO satellites like Starlink is today. I also heard some rumors about a new type of gimbal antenna. So when I look at the antenna for this, it looks a little bit like the same as the land antenna, which is just that sort of concave but flat surface pointing up you know, obviously pointing skywards. Obviously, if the boat moves around, how does it stay focused? Because part of those antennas is a beam forming capability. So I do wonder how how well that would work. So there is some rumors of a new gimbal in, antenna that's based on a gimbal. So as the boat moves, it's got better tracking of the satellite mm-hmm. above it for improved signal. But mm-hmm. uh, you'll certainly be needing some type of channel bonding or link balancing if you're going to be using this. This wouldn't be, the, if you are truly global, but if you are, say, yachting around, uh, say the Southern Europe in the in the ocean there, you're going to have coverage all day, probably 300 megabits per second off your yacht. So uh, yeah, if that's your thing, happy yes. days. Remote if you, working took a new... <laughs> if you're premium yachting in the Mediterranean or the Caribbean, it looks like you're all set. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Links in the show notes if you want to find out more. And if anybody out there does have a premium yacht and has tried this out, let us know. And last but never ever least, remember that too much te- networking would never be enough.